Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. And what a great story that we've just heard there in Acts. Lots going on, lots of exciting things as the gospel reaches the city of Ephesus. I'm going to be unpacking that for us this morning, helping us to feel the weight of what God has to say to us here. So let's pray as we come before God in his word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts this morning, may they be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I wonder if you've got something that you would say is your way of life. Uh, I grew up on the coast, so I'm very familiar with the saying that surfing is not just be, it's a way of life. For other people, that might be fishing, golf, creativity, maybe it's your career. This thing that you go, it's not just a thing that you do, it's your whole way of life. It kind of holistically impacts everything that you do in your life. The surfing way of life, it's about rebelling against the mainstream, isn't it? It's about not kind of getting caught up in the rat race and working hard. The surfing way of life is work as little as you have to so you can go surfing as much as you possibly can. It's about embracing the stoke, embracing the chill, relaxing, connecting with people, connecting with nature. Surfing, it's not just a hobby, it's a way of life. I wonder what it is for you that sits in that kind of space. I was searching the internet to see what people talk about in this way. This one came up as like the number one hit on Google. Uh, It surprised me a little bit. Denim is a way of life. I don't know what that means. Uh, If your philosophy for life, maybe you can come and educate me later on how denim is a way of life. But, But here's the thing. This is why I raised this this morning. When it comes to Christianity, Christianity is not just a thing you do. Christianity is a way of life. Christianity really does impact every nook and cranny of your life, every moment of every day, every part of who you are and what you do. Christianity is not just a thing you do. It reshapes your priorities, your attitudes, your emotions. Sometimes people don't think of Christianity like that. People approach Christianity and think, it's just something that I add into my life. My life's been going in this direction and now I'm just going to add on going to church on Sunday and going to heaven when I die. And they think that that's what Christianity is. It's adding some new app on our phone, some new thing into our schedule. Apart from that little bit extra, everything else stays the same. Today in Acts, that view of Christianity gets confronted and corrected. We see that to be a Christian is to go all in. And as we baptise people later on, that's what they're saying today. They're standing before you and saying, I am all in with Jesus. My life is changing to a new direction. It's being reshaped around Jesus. Christianity is now my way of life. In chapter 19 that Steve read for us there, we meet three different kinds of people. You've got some space in your outline if you want to take some notes along there. You'll see the three kinds of people listed. There's the almost, the fake, and the repentant. We'll work through those as we work through Acts 19. Get your Bible open so you can follow along there and see that what I'm saying is what's there on the pages of Scripture. As we come into Acts 19, let's get our bearings. There's a map up on screen to remind you of where we are. This is real history, real people in real places, in real time. We're we're in about the 50s. Uh, It's not the 1950s, but just the 50s, about 2,000 years ago. Uh, And Paul, we've been following the Apostle Paul on his journey, speaking of Jesus. Uh, Last week we left him in Europe. He'd made it down to Athens. There we go, I think it's on this side. He made it down to Athens in chapter 18. We heard in the kids' talk, he went to Corinth. 
Then he's made his way back home over to Antioch. And now in chapter 19, he sets out on his third journey. He goes up through the interior to this city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Real place, real person, real time. As Paul gets to Ephesus, have a read of Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul travelled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So here are the almost Christians. They're described as disciples, which means that they're probably saying that they follow Jesus. They're probably saying that they're Christian. But something Paul doubtful. He asked them that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now this isn't Paul asking if they've had some second blessing experience. Paul's not going, oh great, you've become a Christian, but have you, have you now had that second moment where you receive the Spirit in fullness? You know, some people teach that today, that there's a two-stage entry into the Christian life. One day you believe, a little bit of time later on you might get the Spirit. Paul doesn't think that. Paul's pretty clear in his teaching that to be a Christian is to have God's Spirit. There's no two stages in Paul's thinking. I'll just show you one place where he teaches that. Uh, Romans 8 verse 9, up on screen, so you don't have to flick there, but you might like to go there later on to check it out in context. Romans 8 verse 9, Paul says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It's that categorical for Paul. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. No two stages here of becoming a Christian and then later on getting the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. So when we get to Acts 19 and Paul asks this question, he's, he's not asking about a second blessing. Instead, he's met these people and they're saying they're Christian, but Paul's seen something that makes him doubtful. And so he's probing a little bit to see if these guys genuinely have encountered Jesus and received his Spirit. And when they answer in verse 2 you notice that Paul's suspicions are on the money, right? He, he got it right here. That these guys haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big gap in their understanding. The Holy Spirit is a key part of Christian teaching, a key part of the Christian experience of life. The Old Testament, everything before Jesus, it, part of what it was looking forward to was this day when God would pour out His Spirit on His people. God's life, God's wisdom, God's will, God's emotion, all of that is captured up in this idea of God's Spirit, that God would send and God's Spirit would come and transform people's lives. Up on screen, there's a promise from Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, you might jot this down later on in its full context. But in Ezekiel 36, God promises, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. It's a big promise. God promises to give his spirit to transform our lives from lives of disobedience and stubbornness, that hard-heartedness, to lives that love him and respond to him. Hearts of flesh that actually feel and love and can obey God. That's the promise of the Old Testament. And you fast forward a few hundred years from there, we meet John the Baptist. He turns up preparing people for Jesus and saying, Jesus will come and baptize you, fill you, immerse you in the Holy Spirit. 
John the Baptist is saying this great hope of the Old Testament, it's just around the corner, it's coming. Jesus is coming. And then Jesus turns up and he is filled with God's Spirit. And by the Spirit, he lives a perfect life of perfect obedience to God. And then he dies. But God's Spirit, God's unkillable, immortal life, raises Jesus back from the dead, back to new life, never to die again. And now the risen Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus, who's gone up to God's right hand in heaven, gives God's Spirit. That's what happens back at the start of Acts. It's this turning moment, this this new age that begins because Jesus has died and risen and now God's Old Testament promises can come true. Now with God's Spirit. For any who turn and trust in Jesus, we can receive God's Spirit and we can finally change. We can say no to sin. We can live God's way. We can become like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not some side part of the Christian message. It is central the key to the Christian life. So when Paul meets these disciples in Ephesus and they say, we haven't even heard there's a Holy Spirit, uh, you know, it's kind of like a rugby player saying, ball? What, what ball? I don't know there was a ball in rugby. It, you know, maybe that makes them sound a bit further back than they are. These Ephesians, they are on the right track. You know, they've received John's baptism in verse 3. So that was John the Baptist. They'd, they'd received his baptism which suggests that they knew they had offended God. That's one of the key things about John's baptism, uh, that people who kind of received John's baptism knew that they were sinners, they knew that they had offended God, they knew that they deserved God's judgment. John was clear on that. But the problem for these guys is they've, they've stopped at that moment of teaching. They're aware of their sin, but they haven't made it through to Jesus, the one who can actually deal with our sin. The one who can bring forgiveness and peace with God. And they haven't received God's spirit. So they're still just working really hard in their own strength, trying to improve themselves, to better themselves, that maybe they might please God. Maybe as you come in this morning, that's where you're at in your journey. Perhaps you've come to know that God is there. You know that he's real. And you know that you're not on good terms with him. You've got that sense of sin, not just sin in general, but your own sin. You feel guilty and ashamed. You know that before God, your life is ugly. Good step. It's the right track. But maybe at that point, you've stopped and self-effort has kicked in. You start out by attending Christian activities, coming to church, going to other Christian things. You, you continue on by using Christian language, maybe even calling yourself a Christian. You think, I'll pull my socks up and work hard at this. That's not the way to sort out your relationship with God. That's to be an almost Christian, on the right track, but not quite making it to Jesus. Paul helps these almost ones in verse 4 by pointing them to Jesus saying that's what John the Baptist was saying. John the Baptist was pointing forward to the one who would come, Jesus. Believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Only in can your sin be forgiven. And so these almost Christians became actual Christians. They listened to Paul, they trusted in Jesus, they got baptised and they received the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here this morning and you're an almost Christian, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus who has carried your sin to the cross, paid the punishment that you deserve, paid your debt, and he now offers you freely 
forgiveness of sin. Ask Jesus to give you his Holy Spirit this morning, that you might have new life, eternal life. If you come to God and and ask him for that this morning, he'll answer that. Have a listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Don't walk out of here this morning as an honest Christian. Come to Jesus. Ask for his spirit. Step into the newness of life, the new way of life that is Christianity. The next group we meet as we go on in this passage are the fakes. These are the people who are not Christian at all and they know it, but they throw around the name of Jesus as if they do know Jesus. Have a look at verse 11. Acts 19 verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the spirits came out of them. Now this sounds extraordinary, and it is something extraordinary. This is not the normal Christian life. It highlights that for us. He says that these miracles are extraordinary even for miracles. They're extraordinary miracles that are happening here. Uh, part of what's going on here, the, the Ephesians, the people in this city, they were well aware that there was a spiritual realm. Uh, we'll see that as the story goes on. They knew that there were spiritual powers all over the place. And God wanted to make clear as he came into this city that he was the top dog as far as spiritual power goes. So these extraordinary miracles that God is performing by Paul's hands, notice that, it's God that's doing them. And God's showing off his power. You think of these other powers, you think they're powerful? Uh, I'm the top dog of all of that power. And so then verse 13, some people try to pretend. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. It's pretty clear fakeness. These people, they they don't follow Jesus, but they're trying to use Jesus as some source of spiritual power. They're treating Jesus almost as if he's a genie in a bottle that they can summon and use for their own ends. They're getting paid for their work. So essentially they're trying to make money off Jesus. And it doesn't take too long to realize that there are people doing that today as well, aren't there? People on television saying that in the name of Jesus you can be cured of anything, really. Or even just people who don't pay any attention to Jesus in their regular day-to-day life, but come to certain times of life and start praying, in the name of Jesus, I will pass this exam. In the name of Jesus, I will get a girlfriend. In the name of Jesus, I will get this job. There are plenty of fakes around. Using the name of Jesus, even though there's no real relationship there. Sometimes the fake is more subtle than that. It's a bit more like the good-looking Gucci bag that's not real. They're just kind of in that that realm of a a better fake. It's the person that turns up to church every week. They're involved in different ministries around church. They've been baptised, but inwardly, they've got no personal relationship with God. Maybe that's you sit here this morning. On the outside, everyone would think that you're a Christian. But inwardly, you know that your Christianity is just painted on a veneer covering up an absence inside. 
You know that your Christianity is just like what Jesus said of the Pharisees, a whitewashed tomb. Looks good on the outside, but just dead inside. You're here at church on a Sunday, but you know that you're going to walk out and tomorrow you'll blatantly and happily disobey God's word. Continue living a life of sin, no regard for God whatsoever. That might be you. I want you to have a look at what happens to these fakes in verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them. So they ran out of the house naked and wounded. On the one hand, this story is a bit funny. I first read it and I pictured some Ephesians watching along on the street going, is that the sons of Sceva? They're naked. I, it feels a bit funny, and there is something funny about seeing confident cheats getting caught and facing the consequences of their cheating. There's something that we like about that. But then I noticed that we actually get told what the Ephesian onlookers felt. Have a look at verse 17. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Through this incident, the Ephesians recognized that Jesus is not a genie. Jesus is Lord of all. He's not to be trifled with. He is a king. He is the king. Jesus' name is not something to just use and throw around. Jesus is not to be ordered around by us. So the Ephesians here, they're not afraid of the evil spirit. They're afraid of Jesus in in the good and right sense that they recognize how powerful he is. In this world full of powerful spirits, they've come to recognize that Jesus reigns supreme. Paul will write to the Ephesians about this in Ephesians 1 verse 20. He says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Jesus is powerful. He's not a power for you to boss around. He's not a power for you to pretend that you represent. You might fool some people around you. They might think that you have a relationship with Jesus. But you won't fool the spiritual powers. And you definitely won't fool God. There's no point faking. So please, this morning, don't get out of here as a fake. Be honest with where you stand with God. Because then we can have a good and honest and open conversation about who Jesus is and what he would mean for your life. And we can look at starting a relationship with Jesus. But as long as you pretend, as long as you fake, we can't really have that conversation. Don't walk out of here as a fake this morning. We've seen the almost. The ones who needed to come with their guilt, receive God's forgiveness and God's spirit. We've seen the fake Christians who try to use Jesus' name for their own benefit and they end up getting owned by this evil spirit. There's the third group of people in this passage though. These are the good ones, the ones we want to be like, the ones that we want to imitate. The true Christians, the repentant Christians. Have a look at verse 18. Notice how Jesus totally reshapes these people's lives. 
Many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now they've seen who Jesus is. They, they look at their life and they say all this stuff that doesn't fit with Jesus. They see their superstition, the false gods that they've been worshipping. They see their sexual promiscuity, their greed, their crude joking. They've learned that these things have no place in Jesus' kingdom. And so they come confessing. Confessing means agreeing with God about our sin. Agreeing that it is sin. Agreeing with God's response to that sin, that it deserves punishment. That's confession. And that confession can happen both generally, you know, we confess the general state of our sin, but also specifically, in that we identify specific sinful practices and confess those. The Ephesians, you'll notice, they disclosed their practices. They got specific. They revealed things that other people might not have known about them. Deeds done in darkness that are here brought and exposed to the light, confessed before the community. But this confession for the Ephesians, it wasn't just words. See verse 19? Alongside their confession, they gathered up all of their magical books and they disowned them. They burned them. This is what we call an act of repentance. Repentance means doing a U-turn. You've been going one way and you recognize this is the wrong way to be living. I'm going to turn my life around. And you turn to follow that's something that should show itself in life as you take the things of your old way of living, your old way of life, and you go, all right, I've got to stop that. I've now got to live a new way. The Ephesians recognized that now they were following Jesus, their, their magic practices were not only useless, but actually evil. They confessed those practices, but then they put their money where their mouth is. They got rid of their books. This is not a small moment, 50,000 pieces of silver. That represents roughly 137 years of wages. So you're looking at something in the realm of 7 to 9 million New Zealand dollars worth of books here. They've been spending their money on this stuff. Yeah, it is. This is a big moment. They've been spending their money on this stuff, pouring it out in, in promises that they're going to get power, that they're going to get security and safety. Now they recognize that all of that was a fraud. Jesus is the power. They follow Jesus. They're safe. They're secure with him. They can get rid of this magic. Turning to Jesus, becoming a Christian, cost the Ephesians these things, but they didn't. Because becoming a Christian was entering a new way of life. That meant leaving behind their old way of life. In the second half of chapter 19, that we haven't read, we find out that they're also giving up their silver idols, their little silver statues of gods. The silversmiths get angry at that. They're like, we're losing all our money. They're not buying these anymore. That's another moment where the Ephesians were going, well, this isn't part of our life anymore. We've got to get rid of the old way. And that's repentance. Not just words, but life change. Embracing a whole new way of life, and giving up anything that doesn't fit with that new way. That could be costly. But it's what God calls us all to do. Back in Acts chapter 17, as Paul was speaking to the Athenians, he said this to them. Acts 17 verse 30. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this by raising him from the dead. Repentance is not optional. It's what God calls all people everywhere to do. That's the main point I want you to walk away with this morning. God commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you and me. Doesn't matter if you're following some other religion. Doesn't matter if you feel like you've been living a good life. You need to recognize and come before God and go, I haven't been living for God, the true God. I've been going in a different direction and now I'm commanded to repent, to to change. Why does God command this? Paul tells us there in Acts 17, because judgment day is coming. A day when God will call all of us, all people, to account for our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions. All of the deeds that we have done in darkness will be brought into the light on that day. If you come and stand before Jesus on that day and and you've been ignoring him, rejecting him, living for something or other than him, then he will be just in his judgment. And like the seven sons of Sceva, you will be left with nothing. It doesn't have to be that way. Isn't this the joy of the Christian message, that although we deserve punishment and judgment, because the, the same Jesus who will judge, he is the one who died, that we might be forgiven for our sin. Again, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of God's grace that he richly poured out on us. Yes, judgment day is coming, but the same Jesus who judges is the one who's given his life so that you could be forgiven and make it through that day, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. Come to Jesus, confess, disclose your practices and demonstrate repentance as you start off a new way of life with Jesus. Now it might sound like in all of this I've been talking to people who are not yet Christian. But I hope for those of us who are hearing this as Christians, this demonstration of the Ephesians' repentance is still really helpful for us, isn't it? Because I think many of us, we we carry around relics of our past life. We still have these parts of our life that we haven't surrendered to Jesus. Things that don't fit with his kingdom. Little nooks and crannies of life that aren't centered around and shaped by Jesus. It's probably not magic scrolls for you. It might be. And maybe you've learned from today that you need to burn those magic scrolls and get rid of those from your life. But it might not be those. It might be magic crystals. They're coming to prominence today. Maybe you need to recognize that those don't actually have any power. Jesus is the power. Throw them out. Burn them. It might be the horoscope that you still read each day or each year. For some of you, depending on the cultures that you're coming from, it might be the family shrine where you've grown up praying to ancestors, praying to different gods, burning incense, making offerings to them. That fit with Jesus' kingdom. It's time to, get, time to throw that out. It's time to go. Maybe, though, for others of us, it's the Netflix subscription, the Disney Plus subscription. 
where you're wasting away your time worshipping our cultural God, entertainment and pleasure. I'm not saying that it's necessarily sinful to have a Netflix subscription, but I'm saying we need to watch that we don't fall into worshipping what our society worships. That's a different way of life. It's a different way of being where we just distract ourselves and escape and, and watch as much screen time as we can have because we've got nothing else to do with our time. No, as Christians, we've got lots to do with our time. We've got lots to be doing for Jesus, with Jesus, within the community of the church. Maybe it's your golf clubs, your surfboard, your car. If any of those things have been your way of life, the thing that your time and money is being poured into, well, now Jesus is your way of life. How will that change be reflected in your approach to those hobbies? Maybe it's your internet pornography accounts. Those need to go. Maybe it's your stash of erotic fiction. Maybe it's your career progression. Maybe that's where your time and energy has been poured into, or your anxieties and your money. I don't know what it is for you. For me, there are a whole bunch of things that needed to get tossed out and... Uh, I do like a good burning ceremony. You don't have to burn things, but there is, there's something cathartic about that. It just goes, I, I'm getting rid of this. This is no longer something that I'm pursuing. Uh, sometimes it's not a big moment. Like I, like I say, I grew up in the surfing way of life, and as life went on, there wasn't necessarily a distinct moment where I went, okay, now I'm going to change my way of life, but life just got busy living for Jesus, and there was less time to go surfing. I, I could have tried to cling on to that, but instead, it was God's kind of just reshaped my pattern of life. It looks different now. I don't know what it is for you. But repentance is something that continues on in the Christian life. So we find these little nooks and crannies that haven't been surrendered to Jesus. And we go, okay, Jesus, this is all yours. My whole life is for you. I'm all in. That's repentance. We're about to celebrate God's work in bringing a bunch of people to that kind of moment of repentance. We're going to baptise them, symbolising their commitment to go all in with Jesus. It's an exciting time. Baptism's not actually achieving anything, it's not doing anything. The water that's out there is just normal water. We paid for it, we got a water truck in, so don't worry that we're kind of breaking the water restrictions. Done it in a good way. Uh, But it's an exciting moment. As these guys go, I'm giving up my old way of life, I've come to Jesus, I've been forgiven by him, I want to live for him, he is the king. Those people being baptised, if you want to make your way up to the stage, we're going to pray and then we'll hear from each of them their story of repentance and turning to be with Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty, most merciful Father, we have strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We followed too much the desires of our own hearts. We've offended you, our maker, and our rightful ruler. We've left undone things that we ought to have done. And we've done things that we ought not to have done. Lord, have mercy on us. According to your promises declared to us in Jesus Christ, restore those who repent. Show us the things that we need to throw out of our lives that we might properly honour and live for you. And so help us by your spirit to live godly, righteous and obedient lives to the glory of your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. 
We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.